Our second scripture passage is from the book of Job, taken from the first two chapters. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The word of the Lord. The book of Job. The book of Job is one of the oldest books in recorded history. It's an ancient wisdom literature is what we call it. And if you've heard of the book of Job, you know the word Job and suffering go together. It's even used by people who have never opened the book themselves. They know Job and suffering go hand in hand. Job is what is often called a theodicy. A theodicy is the journey of trying to reconcile who God is with evil and sin and suffering in the world. How can a good and all-powerful God allow the evil and suffering that we have? Now, when we're looking at Job, and as we're talking about it over the next month, we have to realize that what we're talking about is a cliff falling on, not us jumping off of the cliff. So here's what I mean by that. So we all get that sometimes bad stuff happens because we do dumb stuff. If you jump off of a 200-foot cliff, you will get hurt. That is your fault. But if you're walking along the road and the 200-foot cliff falls on you, then what? That's what the book of Job is looking at. What happens when the cliff falls on us? The main theme of Job is wisdom. Where is wisdom found? Who is the source of wisdom? And as you can expect, the answer is God. That's the whole book. But we're going to spend five weeks looking at it anyhow. The purpose of the next five weeks is not not, not, to answer every question that you have about evil and suffering and pain in this world. On one level, that's impossible because it's very personal. And it does an injustice to have somebody up front talking about it when you have your own personal narrative and set of questions that I probably and other preachers won't answer. And the second reason it's impossible to answer it in full is because it's probably impossible to answer it in full. So don't assume that every question you have will be answered at the end of these five weeks. Our hope is simply this, to begin to think Christianly, which means biblically, to think Christianly about God and who he is and God's relationship with the evil and suffering that we experience. And hopefully to move us towards theological integrity, meaning that we think in a way that makes sense across the board when it comes to things like suffering. And partly that's necessary to help us, many of us, in current situations of suffering so that we can understand how we can continue to have faith in God in the midst of whatever we're going through. And if for some reason your life is perfect right now, this series hopefully prepares you for when it won't be because eventually it won't be. And so because this is a heavy topic and there's more questions than we have answers for, I'm going to open us in a prayer here. Let me pray for us. God, we need grace and wisdom 
as exploring these issues of suffering and cliffs falling on us is very acute for some of us in this room. And there are so many questions that will not be answered with justice. Give us grace to see you and truth today and in the weeks to come and in our lives. Amen. So the scene, the setup of the whole book of Job is here in Job 1 and 2. And we didn't read the first couple of verses, but it sets up who Job is. We get, if we had read those first couple of verses, that Job is a righteous and successful man. He is probably the most wealthy man in the entire region. He is somebody who believes in God, has put his faith in God, follows God's ways, and is lavishly wealthy. His whole family is perfect. Everything is good in his life. And we started reading in that next scene, which is very ominous. It's the angels come before God, and they report to him. And God then points out the accuser, is what it is in the Hebrew, Satan. And says, what have you been up to? And Satan says, oh, I've been going all over the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, before we go any further, don't assume that that's how the economy of God works. Meaning this, the transaction that seems to occur in Job 1 and 2 is a literary device by the Hebrew writer trying to set the stage for us to understand what unfolds. It does not give us how God operates. And we know that because we read Scripture against Scripture. So we read Job 1 and 2 across Genesis through Revelation. And it's not consistent with God that he's here rolling dice with our lives. But like a good Spielberg-esque storyteller, we get the setup in a way that draws us in. The narrative dimension is here. We say, why? What? What's happening? How is this going to happen? And we're drawn into the story as if it's happening to us. But that is not how God operates. God is sovereign. He is Lord. And he does not wager with souls. But in the story, Satan comes before the Lord and he accuses Job. We read, I'm going to read verses 9, 10, and 11. Satan says this to God. Have I considered Job? Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan's accusation is based on an assumption. Satan questions Job's motives. His motive for believing and obeying God. Basically, Job believes and obeys God because you, God, bless him. If you take the blessing away, then he will no longer follow you. Why does Satan assume this is the case with Job? Because he knows it's the case with pretty much all of us. That there's a mentality that drives much of our religious behavior that is behind what he's talking about. And it's a basic human assumption about what is fair and what is just and what is equitable. What Satan sees is what any of you who have two kids recognize. 
If one kid gets a bigger ice cream, the other one knows it's just not fair. And we carry that on throughout life. There's an assumption of fairness and equity, or just desserts. And partly that's, that's enforced by our merit-based society, right? We're Americans. If you work hard, if you show effort, if you're good at what you do, you will be successful. It will pay off. You will be rewarded for your hard work and your production. Achieve, and you can continue on. And in many ways, that's good. America is a land of opportunity. Anyone, anyone can rise. There's not a fixed caste that you're in. If you achieve enough, you will be successful. You will be rewarded. But our meritocracy reinforces the assumption that that's how all of life works, including with God. If you believe, if you obey, if you do good, if you show up at church, then God has to bless you. It's a karmic view of the universe. It's also the mindset of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke 15. The older brother is, is furious that his younger brother returns and there's a big party for his younger brother. And the older brother stands outside and, and, and argues with his father. And he says, all these years, father, all these years I've served you, I've slaved for you, I've done everything you've asked of me. And you've never even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And this son of yours, he dishonors you publicly, he squanders all of our wealth on prostitutes in a distant land, and you welcome him back with a fattened calf and an entire village celebration. The older brother in the parable of the prodigal son reveals the nature of his heart and his motives. He is serving his father to get his father's wealth, not because he loves his father, not because he wants a relationship with his dad. We do the same thing. And when we do, we misunderstand the nature of God and of the gospel. But it goes back to the main question of the book of Job. It's the question of Satan. Will Job remain in relationship with God when everything is gone? And it's a good question for us, too. What motivates your faith? Why do good? Why are we religious? Are Satan's assumptions right when it comes to us? The tragedies then unfold in Job 1 and 2 very clearly, and it all happens in a, in a very succinct and, and balanced paragraph. All in one day, the loss of all of his cattle, all of his employees, and all of his children. His status in the community, all of his wealth, every one of his relationships with his children are gone in one day. And then, later on in chapter 2, his health is taken from him. By natural disaster, by physical illness, and by the human evil of other people coming in and stealing and killing, everything is taken from him. And in one fell swoop, we get pretty much anything bad that could happen to a person at whoever's hands. Natural disaster, health disaster, 
and all your wealth gone by human evil. This is why Job is, is easy to relate to. Because on some level, all of us can connect to some of the things that Job is going through. Hopefully, none of us have dealt with a day like Job. But I bet on some level, many of us have. It may be a season or lifetime of disappointments. If we went around the room today and if we were actually honest about our deepest pains, what we're most struggling with or have in our life, if real honesty was able to be achieved, we would probably find that almost everyone who is over the age of 18 have dealt with something like this. A lifetime of disappointments, years or decades of loneliness, chronic illness, poverty, or the more acute and direct things like infidelity. If the statistics bear out, many in here have dealt with abuse. You've dealt with tragic death, terminal illness, or even simply the decline of aging. And when we put all of these things together, or when we take our very personal struggles and pains, we have very real questions about fairness and justice. And in the midst of it, we wonder, where is God? Can God even be trusted? And underneath all of it is this basic question, why? Why, God? Why is this the way it is? C.S. Lewis once said that pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. I've seen pain as defining. Pain and suffering corners us and causes us to make a decision and to totally orient the trajectory of our lives. We are either in the midst of suffering and pain going to reject God or turn towards him. Pain defines and creates a decisive moment. And that's honestly the benefit of reading through Job, singing psalms of lament together, because it gives word to our pain and questions, helps us to know we're not alone in it, and maybe even turns us towards God together and not away from him. So how did Job respond on that fateful day? In verse 20, we read, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. He gets up, he tears his robe, he shaves his head, then he falls to the ground and worships. What he's doing here is what would be considered in the ancient Near East the the most public act of deepest sorrow and grief. He is completely undone. He is wrecked. And we get it. Yes. When we go through those days where everything falls apart, where you realize what's just happened to you, when you get that news, we grieve, we're broken, we fall. But it also says he worshiped. And that's the one where I have to say how. 
He falls to the ground in grief and sorrow and humility and worships. I think that we have to think of worship not as and worshiped and recognize that what worship is at its fundamental is acknowledging that God is God. In the midst of his grief and sorrow, he acknowledges God is God. He says it very clearly in the verse that follows. In verse 21, the first half of it, he says, naked I came into the world and naked shall I return. What is he acknowledging there with his lips? He's acknowledging, I brought nothing into the world and I can't take anything with me when I die. All the cattle, all the sheep, all the houses, they can't go with me. He recognizes and acknowledges, I'm not in control. I'm not in control of the day of my birth and I'm not in control of the day of my death. And that's hard for us. Because we have a false sense of control. It's built on our self-reliant nature and our free will. Think about it. In any given day, you have a myriad of choices that you are in charge of. I decide what I'm going to wear. I decide what I'm going to eat. I decide what job to take. I decide whom to marry. I decide when or even if I'm going to have kids. We have an immense ability to affect not only the course of our day, but the direction of our lives. And this causes us to unconsciously elevate ourselves and the importance of whatever we're doing or deciding. And in the process, we diminish God, the reality of God, and the place of God over us. Job worships. He recognizes God is God. I'm not in control. And then he fleshes it out a little bit more when he says in in the rest of verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in his response to his wife after his bodily affliction, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Okay, but here's the problem. Think about Job's success, right? If you really went back there and could see what was going on in his life, Job's success and his wealth were his. He had worked hard. He had brought together this great empire. He had built up this business. He was the one who had controlled all of this stuff and had done it really well. He was an incredibly hard worker. He was incredibly gifted at what he did, obviously, and that's why everything thrived. It was his wealth, his property, his business, and on top of that, they were his kids. He and his wife had brought them into the world, had protected them, provided for them, raised them, trained them up, cared for them, sent them out into the world to be citizens. They were his kids, and it's his property. And yet, Job declares, essentially, everything I have, everything I have is a gift from God, and it belongs to God. I wonder if you actually believe that. Everything we have, our children, our house, our money, our health, it's God's. And we're called to hold it open-handedly. And we tend to hold it like this.
How does Job say this? It's a question of, is God sovereign? Meaning, is God actually Lord of all? My sovereignty of God theodicy began in high school, when I was a teenager. See, I had faith in Christ from an early age. And as a teenager, somewhere around 16, 17, maybe as young as 15, but I think it was probably 16 or 17, I wondered, did God choose me or did I choose God? Who is truly Lord? And so I followed in my own thinking this existential thread of why why did I come to faith in Christ when I did or have faith as a teenager? And I had to go back and back and back. I was born as an American Inevitably, that gave me a benefit because on every street, there's a church. And everywhere I go, I can hear about this good news of Jesus Christ. And on top of that, I had a father who'd grown up in the church and a mother who came to faith when I was young. And I was raised in the church and hearing these things. Did I choose that? I guess not. And then as I became a teenager, I had youth leaders like Rick Beckwith from Young Life or Will Cravens who has spoken here at Truro Church who were feeding me and pouring into my life and upholding me in my faith. And I had peers here at Madison and connected at Oakton High School, friends who were also Christians that made it normative, that helped encourage me. Did I, did I make that happen? Did I raise them up? I began to realize that there were many things, including my faith, that were beyond even me. And always the causal string fell upon the grace and sovereignty of God. I even wondered this, why did I get to stay alive long enough to come to faith? I could have died when I was one. My sister tried to kill me twice when I was one. One time I was in a stroller at the top of our garage, which then goes down this long driveway and into a cul-de-sac, but there's a bump at the end, and she, as a three-year-old, pushes the stroller down the driveway. And the stroller stayed upright. I didn't go flying out. I could have been dead there. Some other time within that first year, I was crawling around again in the garage, and my sister decided to push the garage button. And it started pushing my head down. I was a baby. My dad came over and eventually saw it, pulled up, and broke the garage machinery. I could have had my neck snapped right there. We used to drive around. I know this is hard to believe. We used to drive around without seatbelts. <laughs> when you took a turn fast, you would slide all the way to the other side of the car. It was fantastic. Why are we alive? No helmets on bikes, no concussion protocol. Every breath, every heartbeat, every breath, every heartbeat, including your next one, is a gift from God. You are not in control of that. I began to realize that And so with Job, I have come to believe that God alone is sovereign. He is Lord over all things. Even, even 
the pain and suffering that befalls Job is not outside of God's providence. And, and with Job, I believe God is trustworthy and good. What he ordains or what he allows is best. And yet, when we read Job's response in verse 21 and, and verse 10, it's not easy. And I read through that and I say, can this be comforting or helpful when we are in deep sorrow and suffering and fear and pain? Or are Job's statements just confounding and difficult? Maybe it is too hard to reconcile with your pain right now. And partly this is because of the impossibility of theodicy. The impossibility of reconciling a sinful and evil world with a good and almighty God. Our minds fall short. You see, we want to answer this question, why? I want to know why, God. Why did this happen to me? Why did he have to die? Why did I have to be betrayed like this? Why, God? Why was I given this life and not another? Why, God? We want meaning. And what we get as you read through the Bible is this answer. God is God. And that seems harsh. But as you read through the Bible, you also get this. God does not leave us cold and alone and without hope. Job innocently suffers, right? But Job's innocent suffering points to the ultimate sufferer, Jesus. The cross is God's declaration that he will use even evil and sin to bring about great and glorious purposes, which we may not be able to foresee. The cross declares God is with us, he loves us, and has an eternal purpose for us. Do you know how amazing it is that the Christian God came to be one of us? That he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he innocently suffers. Jesus is betrayed and abandoned by his best friends. If you have dealt with betrayal, you, he knows Jesus is falsely accused, and then he is beaten and tortured and crucified, hanging naked, fully ashamed and embarrassed and tortured, dying his last breath in such horrific pain. And of course, there's an even deeper pain than the physical. You know, when we talk about pain and loss, when somebody dies, how much it hurts, it seems that there is an equivalence to the length and depth of the relationship with the person who has died. If I hear about somebody distant from me who dies, I think, oh, that's sad. But the closer they are to me, the more I love them, the more my life is entwined with theirs, the longer it has been so, the more painful it is. Jesus is the Son of God who has been in eternal loving union with the Father. Father, Son, and Spirit are one. 
There is no best friendship or marriage relationship that can equate to the loving relationship that the son has had with the father throughout eternity. And yet as he's hanging on the cross, what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the eternal abandonment of God in that moment as he is dying on the cross. He's experiencing a deeper pain of loss than any of us have or will ever endure. He is experiencing cosmic and spiritual suffering. The Bible makes it clear, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He experienced hell for us. In other words, it's not just that we have a God who can identify with us because he suffered like us. We have a God who suffered for us. So we cannot just know the God who is Lord and sovereign over history, but we can also know him as our loving father who is with us in all of our sorrow and pain and who intends to redeem every moment of our days. I'm convinced the only way, the only way to begin, to begin to endure suffering and still deepen our faith in God is through the cross. The cross assures us that God is over even our deepest pains, working out his purposes and that God understands and loves us and offers us himself, wanting to draw us in and give us hope. We can't answer every question. Not today, not in this series, probably not in a lifetime. But I think we can, with Job, lean into and not turn away from God. We can learn to weep and lament, to cry out and even wrestle with God, and maybe even to worship. Let's pray. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me? Why? Why, O oh Lord, does this happen? Where are you, God? Nearly every one of us has or will cry out that prayer in our heads, if not out loud. Give us comfort and hope. And in that decisive moment of acute pain, turn us towards you and help us to trust the Lord who is sovereign who gives, who takes, and who intends good for us. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you.
Let's be the 